It is scarcely eleven years since Freud died in London. When I now read presentations of his work in books and articles, I am often reminded of a little story I heard as a boy in Vienna. The father of a peasant had died, and the son, an Austrian Peter Simpleton, wished to possess a picture of the dear deceased man. The boy wandered to Vienna, found a well-known painter, and described to the artist what the father looked like, giving full details of the shape of the face, the colors of hair and eyes, and so on. The painter promised to deliver the picture. When the naive boy returned to the studio after a few weeks, he broke into sobs before the finished portrait and cried, Poor father, how much you have changed in such a short time! Reading many books and magazine articles of those last years that pretend to give a correct picture of Freud's ideas and teachings amazes us who have known the great man, how much his thoughts have changed in such a short time. Theodore Reich Hello, and thank you for joining us. Um, I am with Dr. Deborah Anna Lutnitz today. She was on the clinical faculty of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine for over 30 years. She is currently on the faculty of IRPP, the Institute for Relational Psychoanalysis of Philadelphia. She is the author of The Family Interpreted Psychoanalysis, Feminism, and Family Therapy, published in 1992 which is still taught in therapy courses around the world. Carol Gilligan called it a book of unusual wisdom and humanity. Her most recent book is Schopenhauer's Porcupines, Five Stories of Psychotherapy, which has been translated into seven languages plus Braille. It was recently released as an audio book read by the author herself. Dr. Lutnitz was a contributing author to the Cambridge Companion to Lacan, and has written about the possibility of a third way for psychoanalysis, that is, one that values the insights of both the Anglo-American and French schools of thought. In 2005, she launched IFA, Insight for All, connecting analysts with homeless and formerly homeless adults in Philadelphia. In 2013, she received the Distinguished Educator Award from the International Forum for Psychoanalytic Education. If you've seen my podcast before, you might have seen us um, discuss her book, Schopenhauer's Porcupines. If not, I'll put a link in the description and you can go on over to that and watch that video. Uh, Dr. Lutnitz, thank you for joining me today. My pleasure, Daniel. Good to see you. Good to see you again, too. So with this, uh, today's episode, I'm starting kind of a new series on, um, on kind of like book reviews, uh, especially the classics and primary sources that we don't really read a whole lot in university settings anymore, unless it's on our own accord. Um, today, we're reading a book that uh, Dr. Lutnitz suggested we read, and out of all of the books out there, she suggested this one. So if that's not saying something, I don't know what would. Uh, Dr. Lutnitz, can you kind of uh, introduce the book that we read? And so Bruno Bettelheim, Freud and Man's Soul. And First of all, I have to congratulate you, Daniel, for uh, initiating this move to encourage people to read primary sources. Hmm. As I think you know, I, I believe that textbooks are a curse on our culture. Uh, the idea that we can glean great ideas from little a paragraph here or there, 
uh, written by someone who was just struggling to move fast to get tenure, to crank a book out, um, mm. is uh, it's the American way at this point, but it mm. really erodes our capacity for critical thinking. Mm. And um, yes, reading primary sources can be difficult, but it's worthwhile, I think, to struggle either alone or in a study group or uh, in a classroom, if you're lucky, to mm. see how the argument is made, to, to pay attention to the language. Mm. What metaphors does the author use? How do they um, evaluate opposing views open, in an open-minded way or not? Mm. What worldview, above all, what worldview is being expressed? in the writing and between the lines. It's something that's completely lost when you read a one-page summary of psychoanalysis hmm. by someone who may or may not have ever read the primary sources. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> sometimes those textbook writers have to, because they're covering so many fields, hmm. um, are relying on secondary sources you know, um, themselves. So yes, um, and I, I believe that's true, even of points of view I don't agree with. So as you know, I'm a critic of behaviorism and therapies based on it, like CBT. Mm. But I think we should know about them and read the primary sources. Go back and read B.F. Skinner's Beyond Freedom and Dignity. I think it came out in 1969. It's very readable. I disagree with every sentence in the book, but <laughs> it is only respectful and it's helpful to me. Hmm. to know what was actually said, not just an, you know, an article here or there. So that yeah. said, uh, I think it's particularly important to read primary sources when it comes to psychoanalysis because the ideas are so complex and in some ways hard to grasp because hmm. none of us really likes the fact that, we, um, that the unconscious is, is a powerful commanding force in our lives and slightly beyond our ken. And yet, as Freud, Freud believed, it was so liberating for us to try and grasp this. And so um, he wanted everybody, he, he thought it as something that brought humanity together, the idea that we are, um, that our consciousness is only one level of our being. And so he wrote in ways that were pretty simple. He used simple German words, at least in many of his essays, not some of the more scholarly publications. Anyway, so when I was trying to choose one of my favorite pieces for this forum, um, I nonetheless came on the stumbling block of the bad translations. Mm. So why not start there? I think it accounts for some of the most obdurate resistance to psychoanalytic ideas that, mm. that they come across in a very weird way. So I chose Bettelheim's Freud and Man's Soul because he, it's only a hundred pages. He's a wonderful writer. He um, it was Austrian and so he, he, and moved to the United States when he was 40. So he's completely bilingual, German and English, and a great scholar. So um, he's, the point of the book is to explain the translation errors. And in so doing, he gives a very nice view of uh, the essence of psychoanalysis, what Freud was trying to do, mm. what the goals are. So... Um, what happened with the translation. So Bettel, Dr. Bettelheim came to the US and he found such strange notions about Freud, both from people who were for or against the work, huh. uh, psychoanalysis. He, where did you, it's so misguided. So he sat down and read the English translation, the whole 26 volumes in English <laughs> as he had done in German. And he said, now I understand. All right, mm. so uh, the, uh, the first example he gives has to do with 
what we call id, ego, and superego. These words are so well known there in any English dictionary at this point, have been for decades. And he says, wrong, 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 because Freud, again, in wanting to democratize these ideas, and indeed the treatment, as you know, since I work with homeless folks, I didn't invent that idea. Freud mm. said this should be, this work should be uh, available to everyone and 10 free psychoanalytic clinics sprang up in seven European countries, almost to yeah. treating everybody. Yeah. So, uh, so Freud had used simple, the simple words, not id, ego, ego uh, superego, uh, three Latin words. Ego mm. means I in Latin. Did you ever study Latin, Daniel? I did not. Okay. As a, you know, Catholic school, of course we had to. Uh -huh. So ego means I, id, id means it, and super ego means something that's over the, the ego, over the I. Well, Freud hadn't used the Latin. He studied, I mean, he had, he was quite a polyglot, mm. but uh, he used the simple German words, I, it, over I. So in German, das ich, das es, das über ich. Okay. Mm. Very simple that anyone could grasp and not say, why are we suddenly doing Latin. Uh -huh. And uh, and so um, the English translator is a guy called James Strachey, S-T-R-A-C-H-E-Y, a Brit, very well educated, also fluent in German and English, analyzed by Freud himself, mm. and a publisher and translator in the Bloomsbury Group, which is a very posh and, you know, very, very um, intellectual group uh -huh. in the 40s. And um, so not a bad choice at all for a translator. And yet he comes up with this um, very, very odd renderings. And uh, another one is parapraxis, Freud has yeah. said, and um, nobody in America says parapraxis. Everyone just sort of translated that, you know, uh, to slip, Freudian mm -hmm. slip, which is a slip is exactly, do you, can I assume your audience knows what we mean by parapraxis or slip, or should I gloss it? Uh, please gloss it. Okay. So <laughs> it's that delightful, sometimes mortifying phenomenon we've all discovered where we intend consciously to do something with all our hearts. And yet the unconscious, there's always some conflict and we end up doing the opposite. Mm -hmm. So we uh, are invited to a party we don't really want to go to for whatever reason. And it's a birthday party, but we decide, no, we must, we should. All right. So the override, the superego says, you know, be a good sport and do it. And we go out and buy a gift and wrap it up and get dressed and uh, show up on time, fire up the GPS so we don't get lost. And we arrive. Here I am. Where's the gift? Oh, I thought you had it. I thought you know it's on the kitchen table. Okay. So in the common imagination, that's just an accident. Accidents happen, but we all know if we were really determined <laughs> to, to do the right thing and we weren't conflicted, that gift would have gone in the car and been in hand. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we do these things. And and Fry says it can be liberating to realize that if we can use that to reflect, not beat ourselves up, but just mm -hmm. say, when I'm conflicted about something, I have to be very careful. Mm -hmm. And even so, you know, we'll say um, there's, what did I just read? A person was trying to give a speech and was trying to use the word Protestant. And instead the word prostitute came out, oh, no. you know, and there was, <laughs> there was some effort to, 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 you know, was yeah. critical of the subject. So the unconscious just said, mm -mm, I'm blurting this out, you know, whether mm -hmm. you like it or not. Now, politicians do this all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the main reason I listen to the State of the Union address, no matter who's <laughs> in office, no matter who, 
Uh-huh. Somebody is going to say <laughs> something that tells us what page they're really on. Hmm. And let me use the example of John McCain, who I think everyone respects, okay, uh-huh. from all political points of view. Uh-huh. So um, a decent man, whether you agree with everything or not, you know, uh-huh. good man. Well, he was campaigning for Mitt Romney when Romney hmm. ran against Obama. And so he said to his crowd, and I know with your hard work and God's help, we will see the defeat of Mitt Romney. I mean, Obama. <laughs> so, you know, I I don't know the man personally. I don't know exactly, but maybe part, I know he did respect Obama mm. or maybe he was critical of Romney and maybe he was torn, but mm, the unconscious uh-huh. said, okay. So these are slips or paraproxies. And, and what, uh, what was the German yes. word for that? Der Leistung. And um, so you, it's a failed. Hmm? If you're reading this and your native language is German, is it like if we see parapraxis, we're like, I don't know what this means. I have yeah. to. If you're reading it in German, do you automatically yeah. kind of. That's a normal word you would use once a day. anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So most of these are. And uh, another one is um, instinct and drive. So hmm. Freud said trieb, which is simply translated drive. There is a German word instinct. I mean, sometimes translation messes happen because a language doesn't have a word for something. That happens a lot, uh-huh. but not, not in this instance. <laughs> There's a word for instinct, and Freud uses it occasionally because it does apply to other animals. Hmm. Animals have instincts. We have very few. So hmm. uh, um, if somebody tried to cover your mouth, you would uh, pull their hand away and gasp for air, uh-huh. even if nobody ever taught you how to do that. Uh Okay, you don't have to be taught. That's an instinct. Mm -hmm. But we don't have very many of those. Otherwise, we have drives. What's the difference? Drives are malleable. They can have many different objects and they can have different amounts of force, pressure. They can be repressed, sublimated. Mm. Other animals, not so much. I mean, it's magnificent to see a bird, to see birds migrate 5,000 miles in a very specific formation and not get lost and stop along the way and build a nest from certain materials, not others, very intricate and with only a beak to work with, no instruction manual, that's instinct. But Freud said the fact that we have drives instead that are so malleable and um, differ from uh, person to person, family to family, culture to culture, allows us to reflect on what rules should we impose on drives. Now, Bettelheim, you probably know, made that criticism that says Americans seem to think that Freud was saying um, that that the sexual instinct is so powerful, let it all hang out. There should be no rules. Just everybody should have sex with anybody at any time, no consequences, no guilt. Not at all. Freud Freud thought that we needed to change some repressive and hypocritical uh, views of sex. He didn't think little children should be punished for masturbation, for example. Hmm. And he thought that the taboos on homosexuality didn't make any sense. You know, it was a crime in, uh, in the United Kingdom until 1967. So Freud asked us to rethink that. Hmm. Um, But, um, but, no, he thought, you know, love is important and and treating people decently and ethically. And so he wouldn't be for right for yeah. letting it all hang out, as yeah. Metalheim said. So um, so but the most egregious translation error, as Bettelman points out, is the is the mistranslation of Zela, 
Dizela, S-E-E-L-E, very simply translates the soul Mm -hmm. in German. And Strachey translated it as mind or worse, mental apparatus, (laughs) right? Very different Uh connotations, soul, mental apparatus. Let's look, I'm going to read this little page just to hear Bettelheim. This is page 70. Of all the mistranslations of Freud's phraseology, none has hampered our understanding of his humanistic views more than the elimination of his references to the soul, Dizela. Freud evokes the image of the soul quite frequently, especially in crucial crucial passages where he's attempting to provide a broad view of his system. Unfortunately, in those passages, the translations make us believe he's talking about the mind, our intellect. This is misleading because we view our intellect as set apart from, even opposed to, emotional life and fantasies and dreams. The goal of psychoanalysis is to integrate the emotional life into the intellectual life. Hmm. Okay, so we can ask um, then uh, why? I mean, what did he mean by soul? You know, Freud was not a man of faith. Very clearly, he was a Jew, but a secular Jew. Hmm. And so this is not meant to be a theological construct, but he did mean it to be to refer to our essence and not just what's up here. Okay, so. Hmm. And again, he had all those other words available to him. Now, in English, um, since Freud, Donald Winnicott and that group liked the word self and really cultivated it. Mm. And self is also uh, a major term in the American relational school. Mm. German has a word, very serviceable, das selbst. And in fact, your friend Carl Jung uses das selbst. Nietzsche uses it. Mm. And Freud never did. He really liked Dizela. Huh. So, um, so I think that makes a difference. And we have to ask, what in the world happened? Is James Strachey an idiot? I don't think so. I think he was being shrewd. He made a calculation and um, Freud had to approve of it. Yeah. So we can speculate on why Freud, Freud allowed that to happen. But um, uh, I think... This is the reason that Strachey could see that psychoanalysis was coming to the U.S. and that it was going to be in a a huge movement, you know, simply because we are such a big country, much Uh bigger than Germany, Austria, you know, the U.K., and that it would only become um, respectable if it was scientific, because the U.S. Mm. was absolutely obsessed with science. Mm. So think of this. This is a good way of of, um, making the point psychology in Europe was part of the discipline of philosophy. Hmm. And here it's always been one of the sciences. Sometimes we distinguish between natural and social sciences. But as you know, from being in graduate school, uh, psychology is meant to be systematic. And if you can quantify and count things, so much the better. Uh Now, in my day, we called the curriculum rats and stats. Uh, and I, as you know, I was the first person in my family to go to college. So I went in very naively thinking psychology means study, logos, study of the psyche, the, mm-hmm. the, the spirit, uh, also translates soul, by the way. And we're going to be talking about human pain, suffering, history, desire, uh, hopes and dreams. None of it. We uh, were counting, doing my first job in college was cleaning the rat cages for Professor Ben Newberry. 
Hmm. And he would he would do these. That's how he got his job and his tenure. And he believed it's a science. And if we can study how rats learn, we'll know something about how human beings learn. Hmm. So you put the rat through a maze and you change the reinforcement schedule. Either you give the cheese every time or every other time. or And then and then sometimes you would shock the rats hmm. or with electric current or in uh, ice cold water and see if that affected their learning to understand something about trauma. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, the rats were, uh, as the euphemism is, sacrificed. Hmm. And their brains were weighed to see if their if trauma had, well, gracious. Wow. And this and we were all supposed to write things down and think, yes, we had participated in <laughs> important research. Well, uh-huh. my friends who know a lot about animals, I don't, tell uh-huh. me that it oversimplified even the way rats learn. Hmm. The conclusions drawn from those experiments didn't even tell us much about rodent thinking, wow. let alone human thinking. Hmm. So I hope there's less of that. But the spirit of, you know, if something exists, it exists in quantity, if it exists in quantity, it can be measured, is still part of psychology. I'm sorry. And I find nothing of value in the discipline anymore. Hmm. I really don't. So psychoanalysis, on the other hand, um, is completely different and does not, I mean, someone once said to Freud enthusiastically, and of course was an American, said, Dr. Freud, I've read your work in English, of course, and, uh, and I think it's actually very scientific. You have nothing to worry about. In fact, I think I've come up with a measure of many of your concepts, including the libido. Wow. And Freud said, Freud had a great sense of humor. So he just said, Riley, um, that he hoped to die with unmeasured libido. <laughs> <laughs> so on this, on this topic, um, I thought on page 19 uh, in my version, um, Bettelheim writes, psychological research and teaching in American universities are either behaviorally, cognitively, or physiologically oriented and concentrate almost exclusively on what can be measured or observed from the outside. Introspection plays no part. American psychology has become all analysis to the complete neglect of the psyche or soul. Mm-hmm. That's just so sad. Yeah, really is. We took we took the psyche out of yeah. it and we leave only the analysis. The word means to t- take apart, to untie. Mm. Alas, so, uh, so uh, why did this happen? So Freud, and I know you know the answer to this, but I'm going to, uh, this is going to be a pop quiz. Freud had said the worst possible training for a psychoanalyst would be the worst possible training for a psychoanalysis. Yes. Was it uh like was it not med school, but was yes. it okay, yes. med school? See your unconscious new. Yes. <laughs> med school. <laughs> Medical school would be the worst possible training. And mm. what would be the best preparation for a psychoanalyst? Reading like the poets and classic literature and uh religion and all of that. Gold star. Yes, exactly. And he talks about that in a little essay called The Question of Lay Analysis. Hmm. The worst possible training. Go ahead. Which was mistranslated to the problem of lay analysis. Ooh, oh, you really read Battle. <laughs> Another commercial for it. Read this book. Yeah. Yes, the question of lay analysis, Strachey rendered the problem because for Americans it was a problem. Now, Freud hmm. insisted that lay just means non medical in this context. Yeah. So now Freud was a doctor and he liked being a doctor, but he said the kind of thinking you need to do as a physician, that kind of decision tree where you hmm. just Look at the symptom. Is it this or that? Okay. Is it this or that? Then we do this test, this or that. Okay. That's a diagnosis. Is it that linear thinking Hmm. is 
about the opposite of what you need to do when you're listening to the unconscious. When you're listening to a suffering human being, you have to hear what's not being said. You have to pay attention to dreams. So you have to know something about the symbolic significance of those things. Mm -hmm. So as you say, literature, anthropology, languages, religious studies, um, and philosophy, those, that's the best preparation. So what happens in America, not only is the medical degree encouraged, it's required. It's the only country that outlawed lay analysts. In fact, I mean, it was on the books in 1926, so that if a PhD in psychology who had been analyzed in Europe and came to and, and tried to um, do some of that work with patients, that was committing a crime. That's practicing without a license. So um, people fought it tooth and nail, and it was finally, the law was repealed in what year? Do you know? I don't know. Yes. Go take a guess. In what year? <laughs> 1955. 86. 86. <laughs> I started my analytic training in 88. Okay. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So it didn't affect me. I just. 86. So I, yeah. That's so, so late. That means that people just a year or two older than me could tell me what it was like during those years of having to hide because there were medical doctors who wanted to spread the knowledge to brilliant students who were not MDs and they would meet in secret in their offices because the MD could get in trouble, not just the PhD. Wow. And, uh, and all kinds of secret handshakes and, you know, ruses were going on to train folks. It's terrible. And so when it was repealed, um, it was after decades of struggle, people devoted their whole careers, you know, to mm. writing papers and, and making the argument and hiring lawyers and struggling with the legal issues and going to state representatives. Those are hours and hours and years that should have been devoted to taking care of patients, yeah. volunteering for Habitat for Humanity, playing with your children or grandchildren. We're mm. devoted to just getting back to where Freud was mm. in 1926, saying this should be a field where people who understand the souls, understand the humanities can mm. help suffering human beings. Okay. So Strachey, I think, was canny enough to realize we're going to have to pitch this for physicians and American doctors were not so interested in learning about the soul. Mm. And, uh, and I don't know if you noticed the epigraph to this book is... Um, Bettelheim used a phrase that Freud had used in a letter to Jung mm. that said psychoanalysis is in essence cure through love. Mm. He was referring to the, the transference. Um, and uh, no, wasn't going to be a big sell where, uh, for American doctors. Now, this had big consequences. The medicalization of psychoanalysis in the U.S. had grave, grave results because in our country, as opposed to in Europe, Doctors are mostly men. Here's the statistic. As late as 1963, only 6% of physicians were female. Wow. So the medicalization of the field became a defeminization. Mm. So whereas Freud had had, right, in the 10s and 20s, he had uh, a lot of brilliant women around him, not just uh -huh. his daughter, who became a famous analyst, Anna Freud, but Louis-André Salomé and Jean Lamportecourt, Karen Hornay, Many women um, whom he trusted and really felt could make a unique contribution 
oops, no more because they have to be MDs and medical schools don't really like admitting women. So what a mess, huh? So yeah. people, so then it became psychoanalysis in our country as a medical specialty became very conservative and, uh, and expensive. Hmm. So indeed it was about male doctors using this kind of authoritarian um, practice on who mostly female patients. And no wonder so many of my colleagues um, and during second wave feminism just loved to hate Freud, uh, you know, because they, they associated the American practice with him uh-huh. and psychoanalysis in general. And so when I wrote the family interpreted, which is a feminist and psychoanalytic critique of the field of family therapy, mm-hmm. I had two battles to wage. Not only did people want, many of them didn't want feminist ideas mm-hmm. coming into family therapy. They didn't want psychoanalytic ideas. And some of my favorite feminist friends were pretty upset with me. Okay. Oh. So that's why, again, folks, read original sources, make up your own mind. <laughs> and um, this is really is about a cure through love. It's about the soul. And it's about work that everyone should have access to. Yes. So, Very beautiful. Um, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was, yeah, that was a great, a great summary. Great review. The, uh, like she said, this book is only like a hundred pages. It's a quick read. It'll, um, I recommend especially reading this before you read Freud, because especially if you're going to read them in English, if you're going to be reading in like the English version, they, they remove Freud from some of the passages. So for instance, in Freud's paper, some psychological consequences of the anatomical distinction between the sexes, Freud wrote, quote, which I should like to describe as denial which was translated in the standard edition as, quote, which might be described as denial. So in some cases, they just completely remove his personal pronouns and Freud from the whole entire uh, writing. So, um, Very good point. Yeah. Oh, just in case some of your listeners don't know, um, when we say standard edition, that's the name given to the complete works of Freud in English. In German, it's Gesammelte Werke. So standard okay. edition or SE is what we're talking about. And they're in the background there, all those blue volumes. Um, why did Freud let this happen? Um, no one knows for sure, but he did say when someone, was it young or somebody said, how, what, why are you allowing the Strachey trans, translation mm-hmm. to be published? He said, I would rather have a good friend than a good translator. So uh, he, he loved Strachey and saw his mm. brilliance and, and the guy was willing to under, imagine translating 26 volumes under that kind of pressure with no computer. Yeah. yeah. So um, just a little manual typewriter, probably not even an electric typewriter is daunting. And mm. he thought he was doing the right thing by making it scientific. And, mm. um, and Freud wasn't very happy about America. I think he thought it, this is one theory. Freud didn't fight harder against the medicalization because he thought, well, I don't like what's going on in America anyway. They're so materialistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he called America dolaria with the word dollar in it because mm-hmm. all they ever did was try and entice him with more money to give to do this or do that. And they didn't seem to get it. And when he visited America on that visit with, with Carl Jung, he said not one of them at Harvard or Clark University, not one had read him in German. Mm-hmm. And that's just unthinkable in yeah. Europe. Of course, you want to you want to really know something. You, you can't read all possible languages, but if you're if that's your area of study, you go yeah. deep and you read the original. So 
Um, so he let it go. And then what happened was after when the Nazis took over, so many of the psychoanalysts were Jewish that they were either killed or fled and America became the seat of psychoanalysis. So those English translations and all, and the medicalization became, you know, sort of swamped the field. Mm -hmm. um, but to it, France never gave up on, on lay analysis. You know, they, they fought hard to make sure that America didn't influence it. And the UK okay. never gave up. No, no, you don't have to be a doctor there. So can I say one thing about the Oedipus complex? Because that yes, people stumble on that a lot. Yes, and Freud did say it's the cornerstone. Um, well, first of all, he did assume correctly that people who were interested in his work and in philosophy and had gone to, let's say, had had basic high school, secondary education, had read the classics. It was the norm in those days. Hmm. And so you would know, for example, the story of King Oedipus. You would have read Sophocles. And people these days, I think the person on the street maybe has heard the term Oedipus complex, but doesn't know the story. So let hmm. me see if I can say it real quickly. Okay. <laughs> there was a, a king and queen, Laius and Jocasta, they had a baby and uh, they went to the Oracle um, at Delphi. I've been there. Have you ever been to Delphi? Oh, wow, no. It's a very spiritual experience. So um, they went and people stood in line, you know, for hours to get some kind of uh, blessing or reading, you know, some kind of commentary from the Oracle who always spoke in riddles. This was well known, folks, that they spoke in riddles. So the Oracle said, your baby will grow up to kill his father and marry his mother. So they took it literally and they um, abandoned the baby on the hillside. So uh, a shepherd picked up, oh, oh, and they, to make sure he didn't crawl to safety, the Lias, the dad ran a, um, a rod through his foot. Hmm. So the foot was always a kind of a club foot. And the name Oedipus means swollen foot, like hmm. the word edema. That's the, the Greek, um, the Greek word for swollen. So Oedipus is swollen foot. And uh, um, Laius, if you know the whole story, Laius himself had an abusive father. Um, so he passed on the abuses. You know, oh. we know about the intergenerational uh, transmission. Labdacus was his father who, who um, abused and kidnapped a young boy named Chrysippus. Anyway, we got little Oedipus being found by a shepherd who brings him to his uh, town of Corinth. And the king and queen say, we'll take this baby in. And they raise him and they call him Oedipus because he's got the club foot. Hmm. And um, uh, they never ask any more about it. But Oedipus starts to hear that he's adopted as he gets to be a teenager and he wants to know his story. He goes to Delphi and he hears the same thing from the Oracle. You will grow up to marry your mother and kill your father. Again, takes it literally. So a very smart man. Um, and so he figures he has to leave his beloved mom and dad of Corinth because he figures the Oracle means them. So he tears off and just, he's really in a state and he's on the road and he's going to go someplace, you know, um, he's going to go to Thebes because there's been, um, a problem there that he thinks he can solve with the Sphinx. So on the road, some old guy cuts him off. There's a road rage incident in the two chariots and um, the um, and the old man is killed and Oedipus keeps going. So when he gets to Thebes, um, he, uh, he solves the, he helps Thebes by solving the riddle of the Sphinx. And as a reward, 
they give him the queen, the widowed queen, Jocasta, who is his biological mother, but he doesn't know it. So um, they live happily and have four children for how many years? Got to be 15 or so years until there's a plague in the land. And again, the oracle is um, consulted, or maybe Tiresias says that the problem, the reason there's a plague in the land is because the old man, Laius, was murdered and was the killer was never found. So the play um, unfolds in this kind of like a detective story. It's one of the most beautifully written pieces ever, the way it unfolds. Because of the, in the audience, you know what's going to happen, and yet you're still caught up with it. And Oedipus keeps saying, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Why this plague? Who killed Wyas? I need to know. He used to be married to Jocasta. What is the story? And he finally realizes it's himself and that he has married his own mother and had four children with her. Wow. And he blinds himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and when she figures it out, she hangs herself. And then he goes into exile and um, the two sons uh, raise armies and fight each other. He goes off with the two daughters. One of the daughters is Antigone and the, the rest of the tra- tragedy is her own, her, own, um, her own tragic choices. But Oedipus in the end does have something we could call redemption. He ends up with, once he finally faces what he did, he, uh, he ends up back in Corinth, I guess, and says to King per, per, uh, Theseus, I come to give you something, and the gift is mine own beaten self, no feast for the eyes, but in me is a more lasting grace than beauty. So Oedipus becomes this symbol of humility and contrition and self-awareness um, and King Theseus says, where Oedipus is buried will be called sacred ground. So Freud thought, this is the thing. Things happen Mm -hmm. in our past we don't even know about, and yet we enact them. And are we guilty? Are we not guilty? It's so murky. But what we have to try and do is face facts. And the lesson of the Sophocles Oedipus story is not about do you want to marry your mom and kill your dad? Or do you want to marry your dad? And kill? Nah, that's there, but it's secondary, according to Freud, to the importance of paying it, of self-examination. Mm. And when someone gives you advice, look at it critically. Mm. Don't take things at face value the way the people in the story took the, uh, the oracle. Learn about language. Know what a metaphor is. And, and realize this is going to be a long process. And yes, who your parents were has something to do with it, but it's a lifelong process. So it's just a fantastic um, choice he made, I think. People land on it and say, no, 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 he's just trying to say that, you know, it's about enforced heterosexuality and it says that we're all deeply violent and want to kill. And I don't think so at all. I think really it's about meaning. So, um, so that's what I want to say about Oedipus. And yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah and, thank you. Sure. And about, um, and I don't think it's, you know, I wrote a paper about how it's not even um, heterocentric. Freud was so clear. Freud was such a defender of um, depathologizing hmm. non-normative sexuality. Uh-huh. Not all of it. I mean, he's against rape and incest and, <laughs> you know, those perversions. But I mean, about... Um, object choice that isn't what was called um, classically right in Victorian terms. Hmm. Um, And the other thing, oh, the other thing that 
comes up at the end. And maybe this is one way to, to wrap up, unless you have uh, something no. else you want to be sure to ask. So at the end, Bettelheim is talking about Freud's idea of eros versus thanatos, the life and death drives, not mm. instincts, the drives. And it's a little hard to get our mind around. So Bettelheim does a pretty good job of saying that. But it occurred to me um, that a friend of mine has a particular little meditation that he wrote that, that he says every day that I think summarizes the relationship uh, between the two drives, Eros and Thanatos, love and death and everything that goes with those words. Eros doesn't just mean the erotic life in terms of the sexual life. It inc only includes it. Okay. So here's his meditation. Now, um, Dr. Craig is a, uh, um, a psychoanalytic thinker, writer, practitioner in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And uh, so he wouldn't think of this as a prayer, although sometimes it strikes me as this. This is his meditation, all right? Mm. Oh, spirit of beginning, of alpha and eros, of creation and health and love and life, thank you for this gift of being. Oh, spirit of ending, of omega and thanatos, of destruction and disease and hatred and death, Thank you for making this gift so precious. Hmm. So again, that's an easy, put it in your pocket kind of way of thinking the relationship between yeah. Eros and Thanatos, the two drives. Well, yeah. it's been a pleasure, Daniel, as always. Speaking it sure has. Yeah. Thank you very much for joining me for this. And thank you for your wonderful and beautiful summary of the book. And again, um, it's a good read. I recommend it. And uh, thank you for joining us for this first episode. Thanks. Bye now. Bye-bye.